Matthew chapter 10. Today we'll be looking at uh, verses 5 through 16. Verses 5 through 16. Let me tell you a story first. Personal story. Way back in 1998, I can't remember a day in 1998. In fact, it was the month of March, just shortly before I came to New Zealand. Uh, My home church at that time decided they wanted to ordain me to the gospel ministry. I have a plaque on my wall, uh, a little, it's framed, looks beautiful, has signatures on the bottom of my pastor and the man who preached the the uh, the message to our church, and then there was another man who signed it as well, who preached a uh, a message just to me. That's kind of weird. The whole congregation sitting around you, and it's just sermons mainly for you. So it was the call to me as this candidate to the gospel ministry. And then there were other various signatures of other elders in our church, and some of the deacons in the church who were there for my ordination. Well, if you've never been ordained, uh, you, you may not know what goes on. So let me just quickly explain something to you. That One of the things I had to do is I, I had to give my personal testimony of salvation in Christ alone, of how I was, how I was saved as a young man, and God saved me from my sin, and from the penalty of sin, and saved me to himself. But I also had to give a, a whole, quite a lengthy doctrinal statement, and I had to back it up. And uh, they, they asked me questions. They were very gracious, I must say. I expected it to be far worse. Uh, after a couple hours of grilling over doctrinal and practical issues, uh, I made it through it anyway. That's the point. Made it through. And so then uh, after that, that following Sunday, they had a, a time of where they, they called me up in front of the whole congregation and the, the pastors and, and uh, other men, men there as well laid their hands on me to ordain me to the gospel ministry back in 1998. That was an exciting time. It was a fearful time. It was a solemn time. It's a weird feeling when you got, you're surrounded by other men whom you greatly respect and they're laying their hands on you and praying for you. And You know, you know it's, 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 it's a biblical thing. I mean, that's what Paul did to, to men. He would lay his hands on them as well. You can see that in, in your Bibles. But here in in Matthew chapter 10, we have a record of the first Christian ordination ever to take place. Christ ordained some men to the gospel ministry. And it's a particularly important and, and solemn event here. For in this chapter, we read about the Lord commissioning the 12 apostles to go and in, in this example here, he, he's just sending them out into the region of Galilee, that northern region of Israel. And in these verses, King Jesus tells his disciples five things that I'm going to highlight for you today. Certainly he says more than that, but there's five things we'll particularly look at. Number one, King Jesus tells his disciples where they should go. Number two, King Jesus tells the message they should preach. Number three, how they should think about money. And number four, what they should expect. And then five, the character they should show. We're going to take these things one one at a time. So let's look at the first one here. We see the King Jesus told the apostles where they should go. Look at verse 5. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. Here's what it says. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now why this particular restriction? I was was trying to figure this out this past week. Why this restriction? Because he's telling them where to go. He limits in, in this particular situation, and it's not always this way, Okay, but in this situation, this during this first commissioning of the apostles, the restriction was only to Israel and and the region of Galilee. Why this restriction? Well, there's at least three reasons for that. Number one, remember the Jews were God's chosen people. They were the people of the covenants, like well the 
Abrahamic covenant, for example, and the Davidic covenant and others. They were the children of the promises and, and the law God had given to them. And so if they had gone to the Gentiles, remember a Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew, by the way, or an Israelite, but if they had gone to the Gentiles first, how do you think the Jews would have taken that? Well, <laughs> we know how they took that, right? Just read the book of Acts. Uh, they, they, didn't, they were constantly chasing the apostles around any time they would try to give the gospel to a Gentile. And so if they have gone to the Gentiles first they, first, they would have been very reluctant to listen to them because they didn't like the Gentiles. The Jews would have most likely perceived the apostles as bearers of some pagan religion coming from the Gentiles, which you don't want to hear about that. Well, number two, why, why this restriction? Well, it, it's clear when you read your Bible, the apostles weren't, weren't ready to take the gospel to the Gentiles. They weren't ready to be witnesses, an effective witness to other cultures. Number three, the apostles needed a familiar field in which to concentrate their efforts. In other words, they needed to specialize their point of attack, if you will. And of course, they were familiar with Galilee. They were, they were from that region. They were familiar with their culture. So that, that was... I'm sure that's one of the things Jesus, of course, understood, and so he's going to send them out to, to the thing that's most familiar to them. Somebody said an unfocused ministry is a shallow ministry. An unfocused ministry is a shallow ministry, and so Jesus is helping them kind of focus their ministry at this point in time. Well, one of the best explanations that I've heard actually comes from Jesus himself. In John chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus says that, remember, well, let me give you the context, first of all. The context of John 4, of course, is Jesus witnessing to a Gentile. The Samaritan woman, remember, the woman at the well, the immoral Samaritan woman. And Jesus says to her in John 4, salvation is from the Jews. That's got to be one of the, the, a good explanation, because it's coming from Jesus himself. It was a statement that the Jewish heritage was the only source of God's revelation in the past days. So salvation's from the Jews. So these and, and probably other reasons why Jesus is giving this particular restriction here at the beginning of, of the apostles' public ministry. So let me ask you, some of you might be wondering this. Jesus commissioned the apostles and sent them in, in, into his service. How do you know whether or not you are called into the Lord's service? You ever wondered that? How do you know if you or anybody else, maybe your children or somebody else in our congregation, is called into the Lord's service? You need to know this because you as a church, hopefully one day, can be involved in the process of ordination as well. Well, 1 Timothy 3.1 gives us a starting point. 1 Timothy 3.1, of course, is that passage talking about the qualifications for elders. And it, and it starts off with really pointing us in the direction of, do you have a strong desire? Do you have a strong desire to serve the Lord in, in the particular office of elder? Okay, and if you're, not, if you're not, an, you know, if you're a woman, of course, you shouldn't become an elder, but... Do you have that kind of a desire for serving the Lord and being a, a, a Christian leader? Number two, do you have the support of godly believers in your church, in our church? That's, that's another point we need to consider. Okay, If you don't have the support of other people, then it's probably not a good thing for you to, to head down that road. Number three, is God opening a door of service? Okay, If God's not opening a door of service in some way, then, then again, you should, you should reconsider. I mean, going into the Lord's service in, 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 a, in, a, in an official, if you will, an official function and getting paid for that sort of thing is, is a scary position. In the office of elder or pastor is a scary thing. Nobody should do that unless God calls them to do that. You've got to have a strong desire. You've got to be... Uh, other believers need to see that this, this is something that, that the Holy Spirit's clearly gifted you to do. 
Number two, we, we see also in verse 7 here that King Jesus told the apostles the message they should preach. He told them the message they should preach. Look, look at verse 7, Matthew 10, verse 7. It says, and here's what he says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you're very astute and you notice a lot of details in Scripture, you'll notice this is not the first time that phrase has been used in the book of Matthew. It's the same message. And and that's good because there's only one gospel message. You you should have heard this before when John the Baptist preached it in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is is at hand. It's the message preached by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's what the disciples are told to preach here. The kingdom of heaven is near. Now some of you might be wondering, well what is the kingdom? I mean, Jesus tells them to preach this message about the kingdom, but what is the kingdom? Well, I really like Graham Goldsworthy's definition, his working definition in his book called Gospel and Kingdom, he says this, the kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. I'll repeat that. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That is the message they are to preach. They were to preach. It's the message Christ preached. It's the message that John the Baptist preached. Now, in Scripture, uh, if you were to take that word and kind of you know, look in a Bible concordance and see how is this word used in other places in Scripture, you'd find that uh, the kingdom of heaven can be viewed in at least three aspects. Number one, the kingdom of heaven is seen in conversion. And, and by conversion, I mean that's, that's what God does instantaneously in all unbelievers when they come to Him by faith alone, and they trust in, in the finished work of Christ. When a person enters the sovereign rule of God, and, and they do that when they put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The kingdom of heaven can be viewed in the aspect of conversion. Number two, the kingdom of heaven is also seen in consecration, our, if you will, our commitment, our dedication. As believers, we should be living out God's principles, which we see in God's Word. We do that by obeying Him. Remember Matthew 28, part of that Great Commission, one of the ways we obey the Great Commission is we make disciples of all nations. We baptize them. And the other thing we do is we teach them the commands of Christ. We're to teach them. We're supposed to live those out, the commands of Christ, And that's consecration. And the kingdom is seen when we are consecrated to Christ and his mission. Number three, the kingdom is seen in the millennial kingdom, which is yet to come. That literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, when Christ is going to return to the earth, and then he'll establish his throne and his rule on this earth. And then when that 1,000 years is up, then he'll set up the eternal kingdom, which we often call eternity. You say, well, that's the kingdom, but what is the message? Because Christ says, preach this message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, what really is the message? And the answer to the the question of what is the message is, what is the kingdom about? Who rules the kingdom? The central message of the kingdom is about the king. And who's the king? The king is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you preach the kingdom, and by the way, this applies for you as well. As a disciple of Christ, this is the message we are to preach. When you preach about the kingdom of heaven, don't leave Christ out. I heard a funny story recently from uh, a friend of mine uh, here, somewhere here in New Zealand. This, this woman came to uh, one of my pastor friends, and she had this very elaborate piece of paper with what, what she thought the Bible was talking about in regards to the kingdom and the gospel, and she had all these arrows and circles and squares and words all over the page, and she went on for like 20 minutes talking about what her understanding of God and the Bible and salvation, and she got done, and my pastor friend said, 
excuse me, ma'am, where's Christ in all of this? There was no Christ anywhere on the page. She left Christ out of it. And when you leave Christ out of the gospel, you don't have a gospel. You don't have a message to preach. Let me remind you, don't leave Christ out. He's the king. He's the center of the kingdom. He's the one who rules the whole kingdom. King Jesus told the apostles the message they should preach. Number two, King Jesus told the apostles how they should think about money. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. By the way, those are all commands. There's heaps of commands in this passage. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. We'll stop there for now. Remember, this is one of those, you need to be careful as you interpret a passage like this. You don't, you don't want to take everything in the Bible and then apply that to the modern day, okay? Because otherwise you, get, you, you can get all sorts of weird ideas coming from, and people claim it comes from the Bible, right? And, and this is one of those passages you've got to be careful with, all right? Otherwise... You know, somebody might say, hey, I have to wear sandals. You know, I need to carry the same kind of money belt. People get, they get strange things sometimes from the Bible, so beware of that. But there's certainly some principles we can, we can gather from this passage. And there's, there's at least three important principles that should guide our work even today. Number one, the gospel must be offered without price. The gospel must be offered without price. And that, and that goes whether you're you're an official leader in a, in a church congregation or not, okay? Whether you're an evangelist or, or uh, something like that, uh, that goes for every believer, okay? The gospel must be offered without price. You say, well, how do we uphold this principle today? Well, some, some ministers do it in various ways. Uh, some ministers, they receive a salary and they, they don't ask for honorariums. Of, of any sort or kind at all. They just receive a salary from whatever their Christian organization is, whether it's a local church or some parachurch organization or something like that. Uh, but then there's, there's some ministers, they accept honorariums or what, what I sometimes call love offerings from other believers, but, then, but they don't actually ask for it. They're, they're trusting in God for God to meet their needs, and whatever God's people decide to do, then, then, of course, they'll accept that. So those are just a couple ways that some people today uh, will uh, preach the gospel and, and uh, minister the gospel without price. Number two, you should support godly ministers. Christ is saying that godly ministers should be supported. Ministers need support just like everyone else does. They need places to live. Often, of course, they have families that need to be fed. So who's going to support them? Do, do, do we expect unbelievers to support ministers of the gospel? I hope you don't. They're not likely to do that. So Christ says here that it's the worthy people. The worthy people, they're the ones who are going to support God's workers in his harvest fields. And you say, well, who are the worthy? The word worthy here simply means that these, these are the people who accept the gospel. And so we see here Christ also says that when support is given to ministers of the gospel, the ministers are not to refuse it, they're to accept it. Because why? Jesus says the minister or one of his workers is worthy of his hire. So it's acceptable for a minister to receive compensation, if you will, to receive, to, for his needs to be met. Number three, another thing we can learn here as well, is that ministers need to trust God for their support. There are some who don't seem to support or trust God for their support. I mean, think about it. What if God's people are actually negligent in their, their ministry that they're to have? And certainly some are negligent. 
Well, in that case, then the Christian worker has an opportunity to trust God. And by the way, that's an exciting place to be. You ever been in a position like that where you're, you're, you might be wondering, hey, where's my next meal coming from? You know, where, where am I going to sleep? You know, how am I going to pay for this? Uh, those, those are exciting places to be. I mean, you might use a different word, but that's, that's the word I like to use. So it's one of those things you can view your glass as half empty or half full, right? When, when you're in a position where, where you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you don't know how God can provide for something, those are exciting times. You, you look to God during those times. Trust in Him. All ministers need to do that. Number four, we see Jesus also telling the apostles what they should expect. He tells them what to expect. Look at verse 11. He says in verse 11, In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. That Remember, the worthy is the one who accepts the gospel. So he says, find out who is worthy in it, those who accept the gospel. And he says, stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, and by house he's not referring to the, the brick and mortar, by house he means the people. If, if the people there are worthy, they accept the gospel. He says, let your peace, your shalom, come upon it. But if it is not worthy, if, in other words, if they reject the gospel, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So Jesus told the apostles what they should expect. And what the disciples were to expect is, I think, made pretty clear here, isn't it? Wouldn't it be, it'd be helpful to at least get some news like this if you're being sent out like Christ did to them? And so Jesus tells them, hey, you know what? Some of the people are actually going to receive you. They're going to believe the gospel. And, he, and Jesus says, okay, those who believe the gospel, who accept the gospel, then you stay with that person. They are, they are worthy. They're worthy people. By the way, Jesus says, hey, you don't just go in and look for the better deal like we, we often want to do with, you know, whatever. No, Jesus says, you stay Whoever accepts you, you stay there. You don't go and look for a better place to stay. You stay there. Be content. But then Jesus also says, there are, there are other people, hey, they're going to reject the gospel. And those who reject the gospel, interestingly, he says, you shake the dust off your feet. Remember, people wore sandals at that time. People's feet would get very dirty, dusty. The idea of shaking the dust off your feet meant, it, it, it's showing that, that, that God's judgment is upon those people. So, one of the things we see here, this is a, a passage that is a warning, and it's, it's a warning to unbelievers who reject the gospel. And the warning is, hey, take the matter seriously. This is a serious matter whenever you reject the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ is King. He has a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and it's near. It's near. So what he's saying is this is similar to perishing as, as the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah did. You remember that story back in Abraham's day? The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of their wickedness. God couldn't even find ten righteous people in, that, in those cities. And so he rained down fire and brimstone upon those cities and utterly destroyed them. Sodom and Gomorrah were notorious notorious for their corruption. But the cities that here, Jesus says, if you reject my messengers, if you reject the messengers of Christ, well, that's even more serious. They may not be guilty of the same sorts of sins, in fact, what we see here is citizens who consider themselves probably quite godly, but nevertheless reject the messengers of Christ, are going to receive a greater judgment. I like what John Ryle wrote. I've got a quote here for you. 
Quote, Men are apt to forget that it does not require great open sins to be sinned in order to ruin a soul forever. They have only to go on hearing without believing, listening without repenting, going to church without going to Christ. And by and by, they will find themselves in hell. End quote. And I say amen to that. Satan has his many ways of taking people to hell with him. And sadly, one of the ways is religion, the church. Sometimes too many people assume the gospel, and it's very dangerous. Never assume the gospel. So Jesus told the apostles what they should expect, and we see last of all, number five, King Jesus told the apostles the character they should show. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In verse 16, there's three images that we need to look at and take heed to. Three images that I think are at least suggesting, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, the appropriate character of Christ's messengers. Hopefully, you want to be a messenger of Christ, well, look what Christ has to say to you as a, one of his messengers. Number one, he says, you are a sheep among wolves. Sheep among wolves. Just, just get that imagery in your mind. Helpless, defenseless sheep amongst snapping teeth who want to destroy you. Right? That's the imagery that Christ is giving here. What is the imagery he's trying to portray? Here's the reality, okay, in case you're not getting it. The world's a dangerous place, Christ is saying. The world's a dangerous place. Christians are vulnerable. We are like defenseless sheep, sheep among wolves. Yet, in spite of the danger that's clearly evident all around us, Christ says you're to remain a sheep. Christ says don't try to become a wolf or anything else You remain the sheep that I have made you, but you're going out amongst the wolves, so be careful. What often, or what what, I should say, what sometimes happens, and and it's a problem. The problem is when when ministers of the gospel resort to power plays or, or they become very savage in their behavior, and sometimes they do that to accomplish their own spiritual ends. They kind of become spiritual dictators. And when they do that, they are like wolves. So instead of remaining the sheep, some spiritual leaders actually become wolves themselves, and they ravage God's flock. And we cannot forget that we are sent not to overpower the wolves. That's not what Christ says. Don't overpower the wolves. We're not to destroy the wolves We're not to shoot the wolves. We're not to kill the wolves. Christ says you are to convert the wolves. You are to turn that wolf into a sheep like yourself. And besides, think about it for a moment. You can never change someone's heart by force. That's one of the things we learned in church history. One of the great lessons of church history is force doesn't change anyone. Just look at the Crusades. They didn't work. They failed miserably, and we're still reaping the percussions even hundreds of years later from that. You cannot change someone by force. You can't put a sword in someone's face or a gun in someone's head and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It doesn't work. So you are sheep among wolves, Jesus says. Look at the second imagery Jesus uses. He says, you are to be wise as snakes. Wise as snakes. What's, what, what is he saying that for? Well, let me read this commentator here, what he has to say. and This might be helpful. I think it was helpful. Here's what he says. William Hendrickson wrote, quote, The keenness here recommended involves insight into the nature of one's surroundings, circumspection, Sanctified common sense. Oh, that's great. Yeah, sanctified common sense. And it goes on to say, Wisdom to do the right thing at the right time and place and in the right manner. 
and a serious attempt always to discover the best means to achieve the highest goal, end quote. That's a little bit of what it means to be wise as snakes. Use some sanctified common sense. <laughs> or some have, some have even called it uncommon sense or rare sense. Okay. Jesus goes on to say you are also to be innocent as doves. Innocent as doves. This phrase, as far as I understand, refers to purity of your manners, your purity of your life, your lifestyle. In other words, as you go through life, be straightforward. In other words, you ever heard that phrase, what you see is what you get? What you see is what you get? For, for Christians, that's the way we should be. What you see is what you get. You're to be straightforward. Innocent as doves. And in order to do that, we need to be close to Christ. The closer we are to Christ, the more we're, we're going to be like Him, right? And it's only by keeping close to Jesus Christ that you're going to become like Him. King Jesus has given every Christian a great enterprise. You're to be an entrepreneur in, in, in this biblical sense. You're to go into the entire world with a message the gospel, the good news that the kingdom of heaven is near and Christ is that king. Don't leave him out. Christ is the king. We are to summon men and women and children to repentance. Repentance means you're, it's a change of mind in regards to my sin. I, we should no longer love our sin, love ourselves. We love Christ more than we love ourselves. We love Christ more than we love our sin. We're to summon these men and women and children to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And the reality is nothing we can do or is ever going to be greater or more important than that. That is the great commission of Matthew 28. And if that is so, you need to take care then how you go about your witnessing because Christ gives us three wonderful imagery here. Take care how you go about your witnessing. You need to do it carefully. You need to be sure that you are actually serving Jesus Christ and not someone else's cause. Are you serving the cause of Christ or your own or somebody else's? Jesus tells us how to serve his cause here. So as we wrap this up, let me, let me ask you this question. What lessons can we learn? What lessons can we learn from this passage? This, this passage is... is guiding us, if you will. Not, not everything in here is, is certainly helpful to us, but there are many things we can learn, okay? How can we be an effective minister for Jesus Christ? And I, and I mean minister in the sense, not in the, the, uh, the, where, like in my position, for example, where you, you might get paid to do the ministry. But I mean ministry is just in general. How can you be an effective minister for Jesus Christ? Number one, an effective minister has a divine commission. That's what we saw in verse 5. Christ commissioned his ministers of the gospel. Christ has commissioned every Christian, by the way, to a commission to make disciples of him. Number two, an effective minister has a focused objective in this case, the focused objective was to, the, to Israel, particularly the region of Galilee. And I'm not saying that you should be a racist, okay? Because Christ clearly wasn't a racist, neither should we. We shouldn't just focus, you know, some, some churches, they're, they're, they're so narrowly focused that they've kind of lost the Great Commission. It, it's not all nations, it's, you know, I'm going to focus on the 20 to 29-year-old white male, uh, you know, blue-collar worker who, who works in the inner city. Whoa, really? <laughs> you know, some, some people really narrow their focus. That's just one example of, I've heard of churches doing that sort of thing. Yeah, we need to have a focused objective, but, but it, it shouldn't be like that kind of a focus or objective, right? But, but at the same time, you don't, you don't want to be like, some people are they're, they're kind of like the, the mile wide and the inch deep kind of ministry. The very shallow, unfocused kind of ministry that they, they don't know what to do. They, 
You know, they, they, they just don't have any objectives. That's not wise either. Number three, an effective minister has a clear message. Clear message. I hope your message is Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom that, that is near. That's the message that Christ came. The one who came has always existed, by the way. He was in the beginning with God because He is God. The clear message is about this King who came and lived the perfect life that you should have lived and died the perfect death that you deserve to die and should have died but cannot die because you're not perfect. So He took your place, paid the penalty for your sin, and hopefully is conquering the power of sin in your life. And one day He's coming again to receive all those Christians to himself to take them to heaven. There's a clear message, but number four, an effective minister has, a confer- has confirming credentials. Has confirming credentials. In, in this case, Jesus sends them out. They're healing, they're raising, they're cleansing, they're casting out. Those were the credentials of their ministries. Okay, Most likely you're not going to be doing all those things. Right, But nevertheless, there should be some confirming credentials for, for those of us who are effective ministers of the gospel. Number five, an effective minister has a confident trust in God. Has a confident trust in God. We, we should be like these apostles who went out. They're, they're trusting in God to provide for their needs, which is why Christ sends them out. Hey, you know, don't take two or three of everything. Don't take heaps of money with you. You just go out. And you trust in me to provide for the resources that you're going to need. That's the way we need to be. An effective minister is confident in God. Number six, an effective minister is a settled commitment. A settled commitment. In this case, Jesus tells them here in verse 11, you stay there until you depart and go to another place, another town, another city. Stay there. You don't go around looking for the next best deal. You think, well, hey, I don't like the bed at this place, so I'm going to go find a better bed I can sleep in. No. Be committed. Be a, have a settled commitment. When God puts you in a place, you stay there until God moves you somewhere else. And number seven, an effective minister concentrates on those who are receptive to the gospel. That's what Jesus tells them to do here, Right? If they're not receptive to the gospel, then that's, well, that's number eight. An effective minister rejects those who are scornful of the gospel. The Bible calls that kind of like casting your pearls before swine or pigs, right? right? If someone's scornful of the gospel, you, you leave them in their foolishness. You don't answer the fool. Those who are willing to listen, you give them the gospel. Those are eight marks of an effective minister. What application can you make from this passage? Number one, you should not neglect the Jews. Sadly, uh, the Jews have sometimes been neglected. Even, even in, amongst some Christians and some Christian organizations, there is anti-Semitism. That's anti-Jew, in case you're wondering. So don't neglect the Jews. You say, why? Well, Jewish people have an important place in the Christian mission. Christ said, make disciples of all nations. That includes Israel, the Jews, wherever those might be. And and God scattered them around the world. And by the way, this doesn't mean that every believer in every mission has to engage in Jewish ministry. It doesn't mean every church has to, you know, have a certain, you know, percentage of their church budget set aside for Jews. That's That's not the point. But you must make certain that ministry is taking place amongst the Jews, And you need to support those kind of ministries, if not financially, at least support them with your prayers. Pray for them. So don't neglect the Jews. Number two, you should expect miracles to happen. And I'm not saying that you're going to be a miracle worker. That's not what I'm saying. But we, as believers, should expect miracles to happen. Is is God still in the miracle working business or not? Of course he is. Of course he is. And, and by the way, the church, we see, has in Scripture has been given the authority by God. This doesn't mean we control God. 
God is not a vending machine. Okay? This doesn't mean that we can do whatever we wish. However, God is sovereign. God reigns supreme over his creation, and he is certainly still in the miracle business. He's doing miracles. I'm an example of that. When I was converted, God did a miracle in my life. If you've been converted and regenerated and are justified by faith in Christ alone, then that was a miracle. So certainly miracles are still happening today. And so we need to expect them. Expect God to glorify himself through miracles. Number three, you and all ministers should avoid the prophet motive. You and all ministers should avoid the prophet motive. Now, we have a tragedy on our hands today. Too many well-known Christian leaders are, uh, go around charging huge amounts for their gospel ministry. I've even heard of some that put a bad name on the cause of Christ and, and the gospel by, uh, by doing so. They charge exorbitant fees. Some have several homes in ver- various countries of the world. They fly around in their private jets. You've probably heard of them, haven't you? That's a shame. I don't want to face the Lord. I certainly would not want to face the Lord after that kind of a ministry. Whoa, that'd be a scary thing. They're going to have a lot to answer for if they make it to heaven. Whenever we minister for gain, whether that gain is for money, fame, power, or some, some other, other reason, there's going to be no reward in heaven if these kind of people even make it to heaven. Now, this does not mean a minister should not be paid, okay? Please don't, don't pendulum swings can go the other way, all right? One pendulum swing is, is uh, where you've you got this profit motive, and, and that's all it's about. Some of them, you, you wonder, do they even care about Christ and the gospel? Do they care about people and their souls? Or is it all about making money so I can have mansions in every continent on the planet and fly around in my private jet? That's not what it's about. Well, one commentator put it this way. This was helpful. Quote, The church does not pay its ministers. Rather, it provides them with resources so that they are able to serve freely. In practice, this means that the ideal situation occurs when the church is as generous as possible. The ministers do not concern themselves with material matters and are above selfish material interest. End quote. In other words, I'll put it in my own words. A minister's resources should be sufficient, but not extravagant. Okay? For example, I don't need to live in a million-dollar house, right? I don't need to have five cars. I don't need a private jet. Okay? I don't need all those things. I don't want all those things. I, I would much rather just, just make by and, and do what we can for the ministry for the cause of Christ. I hope... I hope I am not driven by a profit motive, and if I am, then I need to be rebuked, and I need to confess my sin. But a minister's resources should be sufficient, but not extravagant. Last, number four, you should expect opposition. By the way, the the verses to come make this even more clear than this passage. This This is going to be the theme in the rest of this mission discourse that Christ is giving. Yet how do we put, actually put this in a context where so few of us are being persecuted? I mean, when, when's the last time you've actually heard of somebody in our city, in, in one of our sister churches or in this church, that, that's actually been killed for their faith? Never happened that I'm aware of. And so there's at least three levels at which I, I think this is relevant for us to today, okay? Because we're, we're not for the most part, not being thrown in prison, not being killed for our faith. So let me give you three helpful points, I think. Number one, remember that there are more martyrs now than there has ever been before. Yes, even in this century, there are more martyrs in in the last century, and it's going to continue on in this century, more martyrs than there ever has been before. And so the church throughout the world is suffering greatly. Okay, You, You may not be seeing it, but it's happening. It's there. Number two, 
You may not be suffering now, but i got news for you. You need to get ready for suffering. Because if Christ doesn't come back soon, the suffering is going to happen in our congregation and in in other congregations in New Zealand. It's going to happen. If the government gets its way, there's going to be ministers of the gospel who will be probably thrown in prison because they don't marry a homosexual. That's just one example. So you may not be receiving this opposition and suffering now, but it's coming. If our nation continues to become more and more heathen and pagan and anti-God as it's, it's, it's heading down, the, it's, it's already there and it's continuing down that path, the suffering is going to happen in the very near future, even in your own life. And so we need to be ready. Okay? Christ is saying be ready for it. Number three. Maybe the reason you're not suffering is because you're just not a follower of Christ. Well, number one, maybe, maybe you're not even a Christian, okay? If you're receiving no opposition, maybe it's because you're like the majority of people who are on the broad way to destruction. Maybe you haven't, as Christ said, maybe you haven't entered the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. My friend, if you're not receiving opposition you need to examine yourself very, very carefully. If, if you're not constantly having worldview clashes with people, you need to ask yourself if you're even in the faith. Maybe some of us are Christians, and maybe we're just not committed Christians. Maybe we just wanted the fire insurance. We, we like the Jesus part, but we don't like the Lord Jesus Christ part. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you're not actually committed Maybe you're like uh, one testimony I heard of a lady one time uh, at church uh, many years ago. She, she kind of viewed herself as a secret agent Christian. She didn't actually want people to know that she was a Christian. So she's, you know, she's the secret agent Christian, and she's just kind of trying to blend in, you know, putting on her spiritual camouflage. You know, I got my fire insurance, but I don't actually want my unsaved workmate to know that I'm a Christian because I don't want any opposition. Maybe that's, maybe that's why. Maybe. Those are some possible things, three levels at which this is certainly relevant for us to today. So, my friend, you should expect opposition. That should be the normal thing. Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to get it. You're going to receive opposition. As they persecuted me, they're going to do the same to you, he says. So we need to expect it. We need to be ready for it. Okay, we need to, need to kind of put that steel in our backbone, put the rebar in the concrete so that when it does come, you're like Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. Remember Daniel chapter 1, verse 8? Daniel had purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. He's just a young man. Imagine if Daniel was taken from his homeland, taken from his parents taken from his religion, if you will, to this heathen place in Babylon, if he didn't have that steel in his backbone before he's put under the peer pressure, he probably would have collapsed. You've got to be ready for that ahead of time. You've got to expect the opposition to come. You've got to know what to do in those situations and say, I will not defile myself. I will do what God wants me to do, no matter the cost. Daniel's friends did the same, didn't they? When they're standing before the idol and the king says, everybody's going to bow down when the music is played, you bow down and worship the idol. If Daniel's three friends had not made up ahead of time, hey, I will not worship idols, there is only one God, and that's not him. If they didn't have the steel in their backbone, they would have bowed down just like all the other Jews who were there worshiping the idol. They refused to do it and were thrown in the furnace. My friend, the opposition's coming. You've got to be ready for it. Okay? I mean, how does that look for you if you're in school? Okay? Whether you go to WinTech or a public school or whatever, I mean, your friends are going to say, hey, you know, your parents are idiots. They're going to attack your parents. They're going to attack your worldview. Right? It, it's happening with my children. <laughs> okay? I know what this is like. Right? You're going to say, your parents are stupid. You know, they got crazy ideas. Why aren't you like us? Very subtle in their attacks, right? 
You know, you dress weird. You have weird ideas. Why don't you do your hair this way? Here, have a smoke. Here, have some drugs. You know, be like us. Yeah, Wintech, they might, they might ask you to go to a party. Yeah. Beware. Opposition's coming. What if you're in the workplace? How does the opposition come in the workplace? Well, I know what that's like. I've been working at LIC for a couple months now, and it's, to me it's, it's pretty obvious who's the Christian and who's the not. The clash of worldviews is going on every day. I mean, they, they don't understand, hey, why, why did you vote for this particular United States president and not the other United States president? Well, okay, glad you asked. I'll give you my worldview. The worldview determines who I vote for, all right? And they don't get that. They just don't get it, all right? Those are just some of the little things the world is, is coming at you. Hey, why don't you do this with me? They don't, they don't like it when you don't do the things and think the way they think. Why? Because Jesus says in the book of John, darkness hates the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. You need to know that. If you're not ready for that, you're going to succumb to the evil, to the wickedness, to the corruption. It will influence you. So Romans 12 says, hey, you don't, you don't conform yourself to the world. You conform yourself to Christ. You renew your mind. Use the Bible to, to renew your mind. Wash away the filth so that you look and think and act like Christ. Okay? My friends, we, one of the reasons we're not receiving opposition is because we're not fully committed to Christ. We're not fully committed Christians. We haven't taken up our cross and denied ourselves. We love ourselves. Why would I deny myself when I love myself, right? I worship myself, thank you very much. Why would I want to worship Christ? I take Christ when it's convenient, and when it's inconvenient, I worship me. Many Christians try to do that. doesn't work. doesn't work. Right? You're to be fully committed to Christ during the inconvenient and the convenient times when you receive persecution and during the good times. My friend, Jesus Christ has given us a commission just as he did to the apostles. Are you obeying that commission? Have you recognized Jesus Christ as your king? Are you looking to him, serving him? Are you preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? He's the king of the kingdom. May God help us by his grace to know Christ, to be commissioned by him and to serve him.